For 4th of July in 2016, one pastor, Eric Raymond, wrote a declaration of dependence. And he wrote this as an article for the Gospel Coalition, and it reads, As a believer, I realize that I am depending on Christ for his perfect obedience to the Father, for I do not obey. For sinless perfection, for I am sinful. His wrath saving death for I am unable to save myself from God's wrath. His perfect righteousness before the judgment bar, for I have deficient righteousness. His ability to keep me saved, for I cannot keep myself from my wandering ways. His sovereign ability to rule this world, for I struggle with organizing my days. His unfading love, for I trip on myself daily. His ultimate motivation for life and ministry. For I have nothing in myself that trumps this. His priceless blood that will never depreciate. For I have no means to pay. It is good, therefore, to declare dependence upon the Savior, knowing that there is a day coming when those who are gathered together in His kingdom will unite in numbers that will dwarf the firework crowds to declare dependence upon King Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. This is an article that highlights the importance of the Christian's dependence on God. And our passage for today deals with our dependence on God and gives us some implications of being united to Christ, specifically how we are to live while we wait for his return. My desire for you this morning is that you would be encouraged by the fact that the gospel is not only the door into God's kingdom, but also it is what enables you to preserve, to persevere in Him. So if you're taking notes this morning, we'll be answering the question, how are Christians to stand firm in the Lord? How are Christians to stand firm in the Lord? And there are five things that we are to do according to our text. So our main point is this. To stand firm in the Lord, strive for unity in the Lord. Strive for joy in the Lord. Strive for self-control. Strive for dependence on God. And strive for godly living. And if you didn't get all of those, don't worry, I'll, I'll be repeating them as we um, approach each point. So please turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. And if you're using one of the pew Bibles in front of you, it's located on page 982. 982. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. If you're joining us for the first time, let me give you a brief recap of what we've learned so far in this letter. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul while he was on house arrest because of his defense and proclamation of the gospel. And while he wrote this letter, he was awaiting trial. During his time under house arrest, he was still able to have visitors and was able to proclaim the gospel. And in chapter 1, we saw that Roman prisoners, um, and Paul was one of them, were assigned a soldier to guard them around the clock, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. So Paul used this opportunity to share the gospel with each of them. And as a result, we see that the gospel spread throughout Rome. And this gave other Christians boldness to share the gospel. This letter was written to the church at Philippi. And Philippi was a Roman colony. And this colony took great pride in being Roman citizens. If you were to visit Philippi during this time, it would feel like you were in Rome, a miniature Rome. Um, this was a, a colony that was inhabited by many Roman soldiers who were retired and their allegiance was to Caesar. This letter was written for a few reasons. It was written to express Paul's gratitude for their partnership in the gospel. The church had sent financial help and one of their own members to assist Paul during his imprisonment. Paul also wrote this letter to inform them of his circumstances. He wanted to assure them that despite his imprisonment, he was full of joy because the gospel was advancing. And he also wrote this letter to encourage them and exhort them toward humility and unity. So he provided instruction for how to deal with external persecution and with internal problems. This letter is a letter that is filled with gospel truths to encourage God's people to rejoice no matter their circumstances and to fulfill the calling of living lives that are worthy of the gospel. So listen to some of the different facets of the gospel that we find in this letter. This is a gospel that has been given to all believers as an undeserved gift by God's grace. This is a gospel that results in peace with God. It is a gospel that unites Christians to Christ and to other Christians. It is a gospel that is worthy of being suffered for. It is a gospel that is unstoppable and it will advance no matter the circumstance. It is a gospel of triumph where Christ humbled himself to the point of death and the Father resurrected him, making him Lord of all. It is a gospel of power, of resurrection power that enables Christians to be like Christ and to suffer like him. It is a gospel that enables Christians to persevere it is a gospel of salvation that guarantees that the risen Lord is coming back to make all things right again. 
And it is a gospel that calls us to stand firm. So this brings us to our passage for today. Our first point is, stand firm in the Lord by striving for unity in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord by striving for unity in the Lord. The first thing that we learn about unity is that there is a need for unity. In our text, Paul makes another exhortation. Uh, for unity, because there was a disagreement in the church between two sisters, Iodia and Syntyche. And you see it right there in verse 2. If you look at, if you look at verse 2 of chapter 4 with me, and read it with me. Here Paul writes, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, what was different about the first call to unity that we found in chapter 1, is that it was a general call to the church as they faced opposition from the outside world. But this time, here in chapter 4, Paul's exhortation for unity is specific as he addressed two specific people. Now, these letters that Paul wrote to churches were written to be read aloud in the congregation. So imagine, in a morning like this one, where the congregation gathered together, to listen to Paul's letter being read. Imagine these two women sitting there, gathered with the Philippian church, while listening to Paul's letter, when all of a sudden they hear, I entreat Iodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Awkward, right? (laughs) Right? We don't know much about the nature of their problem, But what we do know is that Paul wasn't trying to embarrass them because this letter is a letter that shows that Paul really cared for them. If you look at chapter 4, verse 1, so the verse right before um, our passage starts, here we read, Therefore, my brothers, brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. This is the feel, this is the tone of the letter. It is one where Paul um, is showing his love, his care, his concern for them. So far from wanting to embarrass Yodi and Syntyche, Paul calls them out because their disunity was a serious problem that was affecting their relationship with each other. And if it wasn't treated, it would affect the entire church and their witness to the watching world. So we see then that addressing the issue was actually a loving thing for everyone. So while we aren't told what their problem was, we are told how they were to solve it. The first thing that Paul tells the women to do is to strive for unity by agreeing with each other. And we can tell that agreeing together is important because Paul repeats this word, appeal. He repeats it twice. The repetition of the word, um, or I entreat, I apologize, I entreat, he repeats it twice, and he repeats it twice before mentioning each of their names. This emphasizes its importance. The first step that they were to take was to come together for the purpose of solving their problem with each other. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's easy to overlook obvious ways that we can solve problems. If you've ever had a disagreement with someone, you know that the easy thing to do is to kind of go your own way and to avoid the person, so to to avoid the problem. 
Well, Paul says that they were to resolve their disagreement by coming together for the purpose of agreeing with each other. And what Paul had in mind here when he called them to agree was for them to decide to think the same way or to have the same mind. And the purpose was so that they would walk alongside each other in the same direction. Next, notice that the text tells us what they were to agree in. They were to agree in the Lord. You see that in uh, in verse 2. This is the main reason why the Philippians and all followers of Christ need to strive for unity. It is because of our union in Christ. It is in Christ that we have the perfect model of the one who gave his life to unite lost rebels to God. And if you're a Christian, this is what Christ gave his life for, so that you would be united to God. If you're a Christian, this is one of the many gifts that God has given you. And remember, when all you deserved from God was his justice and his wrath, he gave you his son so that you, if you repented and believed, so that you would belong to him. And now, because you belong to him, you have the responsibility and opportunity to submit your desires to the Lord. For Yodia and Syntyche, this was an opportunity for them to die to their own desires and to submit them to the Lord. So agreeing together meant setting their minds on Christ and His gospel, and then working on a way to move in the direction that would advance His kingdom, in a way that would honor Him. And this is what it means for you too, if you're a Christian. The next thing that we notice about our need for unity is that it isn't always easy to resolve our differences alone. And because of that, we need to allow the church to help us, or we need to allow for outside help. And we get this from verse 3. Read it with me. It says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Here we see Paul calling on this true companion of his, calling the true companion to step in and to help them agree in the Lord. Now, we don't know who this true companion is. Um, nowhere in the letter do we, do we um, have an idea of who, who this is. But what we do know is that Paul wanted this companion to come alongside these women and to help them to come to an agreement. So this shows us one of the ways that church members are called to come alongside other church members for the purpose of preserving unity. In First Baptist Church, I think here we have a word that applies to us. If you find yourself knowing of disunity in the church, don't buy into the lie that getting into other people's business is rude and none of your business. Divisiveness is a destructive problem, and unity is something that we need to strive for together, collectively, as God's people. If you are in Christ, you have the opportunity and responsibility to help because it deals with your unity to the bond of Christ. It deals with what Christ gave his life for. The third thing then that we learn about striving for unity is that its source is the gospel. Its source is the gospel. And here we see two reasons why 
they were supposed to agree in the Lord. We find the reasons in the rest of verse 3. So we read, Yes, I, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. The first thing I want to draw your attention to here is their identity. These women were not like the Judaizers that Paul had warned them about. No, these women were redeemed sisters in the Lord who belonged to God. And we know this because Paul says their names are in the book of life. Here, the book of life is a reference for those who belong to Christ and have been given eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And we read about the, 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 the book of life in different passages in Revelation, Revelation 3.5, Revelation 20.15, and in other passages. But this is what the book of life refers to. And this is what the gospel does. It was true of them, and it is true of you, Christian. The gospel has united you to Christ, and therefore your name is written in the book of life. So we find their identity here. But the second thing that Paul reminds them of is their mission. These women were co-workers with Paul. They had labored with him to advance the gospel. The problem was that unity was lost because something else had become more important to them than the gospel. So Paul had to step in and say something like, Iodia, Syntyche, snap out of it. Don't you know that you two belong to Christ and have the same mission? Find a way to die to your preferences and seek to agree about Christ's mission and walk together. You see, disunity in the church creates opportunities for destruction. And if it's not dealt with or addressed, it can be harmful to everyone. So these two things are important because being united to Christ in the gospel has practical implications for how we live our lives. First, Christian, now you have the opportunity and the possibility to strive for unity in Christ. This wasn't always the case. Remember, division and disunity is natural to man. After the fall. Because after sin entered the world, it corrupted man's heart, leading man towards hostility towards one another and with God. And we see this, uh, a prime example of this in Genesis, in the children of uh, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, where Cain's heart was evil and led him to kill his own brother. So in Christ... We now have the opportunity and possibility to model Christ's work of dying to self for the sake of unity. And not only that, but you also have a responsibility to strive for unity with other Christians, especially those in the local church. If Christ is your Lord, then his people are your people. And you are called to love Christ by loving them. If we fail to strive for unity in the Lord, there will be consequences. One of those consequences will be that it will create divisions in the body. And those divisions will affect the health of the church. Instead of focusing on seeking God's kingdom, our efforts will be spent on trying to fix the problem or to do damage control.
Another consequence will be that the church's ability to be a witness to the world will be affected. Divisions in the church lie about Christ. For example, in Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.13, Paul asks the Corinthians who are experiencing something similar, is Christ divided? Divisions in the church lie about Christ being divided. And these kinds of lies will repel the lost rather than attract them because it offers them nothing different than what the world already offers them. Divisions in the church also dilute the gospel. Divisions in the church lie to the world saying that the gospel is not powerful to unite. And we know that that's not true. So let's remember that Christ is one. And what's of most importance is His message, His will, not ours. So strive for unity for the sake of Christ, for the sake of each other, and for the sake of the lost. So Christian, do you see the importance of unity in the church? Are you willing to ask for help if you were to find yourself in a difficult situation where you weren't able to agree about non-essentials? The church is one of the means that God has provided for you to grow in your faith and to grow in maturity and holiness. So seek help from others so that Christ would be glorified in our unity. So the first thing we're to strive for is unity in the Lord. Now let's move on to the second thing that we're to strive for, which is Strive for joy in the Lord. Strive for joy in the Lord. Like the Philippians, we also need to be reminded to rejoice in the Lord. And there are different reasons for this. We live in a fallen world with fallen people and thus have many things that try to steal our joy. Think of the different things that try to do that, such as illnesses, Various kinds of problems, experiencing some kind of loss, relational tensions, just to name a few things. Paul says that we have a need to rejoice. And notice what Paul says about rejoicing. If you look at verse 4 with me, he says that we are to rejoice in the Lord always. Yes, even in the midst of hardships and suffering in the world. And as we keep reading verse 4, it's almost as if Paul anticipated someone in the congregation saying, Rejoice always? Even in suffering? Because Paul continues writing, Again, I say, rejoice. So we see that joy is necessary for the Christian. The joy that Paul is referring to is a joy that is not based on circumstances. Remember Jesus' words in John 16, 33, In this world you will have trouble. And if joy is dependent on our circumstances, then we can expect for our joy to not last because the world is broken and things are only getting worse. For example, let's say your joy is found in having a healthy body or having a nice new car or having the house that you've always wanted, or being in a relationship. If your joy is dependent on these things, it's only a matter before, it's only a matter of time before life happens and those things break down on you, or those things lose its value, or 
one of your loved ones is affected by problems of this the, this fallen world when this takes place and it and, and it usually does your good circumstance goes out the window along with your joy and this happens to everything in this world and this makes it easy for our hearts to grumble complain and sin against god and others so our circumstances are not what our joy should be grounded on if our joy is not dependent on circumstances then what is it dependent on well paul tells us what does the text say read verse 4 with me once again rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice it is to be grounded in the lord this is the only source of unshakable long lasting eternal joy it is in the person of jesus christ when our joy is grounded in christ we are able to rejoice always And of course there will be situations and times where we experience pain and we experience grief and we experience sorrow. But even in those moments it's possible to experience joy. We see that it's possible to have joy regardless of our circumstances because Paul is writing this letter while he is on house arrest, while he is imprisoned. So joy does not mean that you will walk around clapping, singing Pharrell song, I'm so happy, for example, ignoring the effects of the fall. No. Joy is an attitude of the heart and comes as a result of knowing Christ and what he has done for you. We can rejoice when we understand what we deserve, which is God's justice and wrath for our sins. and when we also understand what we've been given God's undeserved gift of salvation because Christ gave his life on the cross for our sins restoring our relationship to the father because Christ died and resurrected once and for all we have a sure and steady source of joy that is eternal we maintain this joy by having an awareness of all that God has done for us in his son Jesus Christ It's what the psalmist writes about in Psalm 1 where he writes, "Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night." This is how we maintain our joy. So fix your eyes on Christ. Revel in his word and let your heart be filled with joy as you are reminded of the grace that you have been given in Christ. Now what's the result of rejoicing in the Lord always? Well, the first thing that we see is that we are enabled to stand firm and persevere in the Lord. Joy gives you a right attitude to serve the Lord. Joy leads you to strive for unity if there is a temptation to be divided. Joy enables you to see yourself rightly and move and then enables you to move towards giving yourself to the work of the Lord. Another outcome of joy is that it shows people what it's like to have your sins forgiven and be in right relationship with God. In other words, it validates the gospel, the gospel that you share your um with others in your gospel conversations. 
So rejoice the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul says again, rejoice. If you're not a Christian and you're visiting us this morning, welcome. We're happy that you're here. I want to ask you a question. Where do you go to find joy? Where do you go to find joy? And let me follow that up with another question. Is it long-lasting joy? Or do you find yourself chasing after different things only to find that your joy is fleeting? Did you know that it's possible to have true and lasting joy? Christian, if you find yourself lacking joy, I want to encourage you to check your heart and make sure that you're not grounding your hope on something other than Christ. Meditate on the gospel long and hard. Let it grip your heart until your lips are filled with praise. Do this often and you will find yourself rejoicing always. So we see that we are to stand firm by striving for unity and joy in the Lord. The third thing that we must strive for is self-control. Self-control. Please look at verse 5 and read it with me. Paul writes, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. If you have an ESV Bible... Verse 5 says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The NASB translates the word reasonableness as gentle spirit. The NIV translates it as gentleness. And the Holman Christian Standard Bible uses the word graciousness. And this word is, is a word that's a little complicated to translate into one exact word. But scholars help us understand that this word gets at the idea of gentle forbearance with others or graciousness, the graciousness that we extend to others. Now, the idea behind this is to be able to hold oneself back from doing something when dealing with others. We find an example of this in Peter's description of the Lord's life found in 1 Peter 2. And uh, you don't have to turn there, but I'll briefly read some of the verses that we find there. Listen to what Peter says regarding unjust suffering. He says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This can be seen as a description of self-control. In light of the opposition and suffering that the Philippians were experiencing, internally and externally, Paul reminded them 
that they needed to follow in the footsteps of Christ. And this is the same example that has been left for you to follow, Christian. So we said that this word captures the idea of gentleness and forbearance. We need to be self-controlled so that we display the same gentleness that we have received from the Lord. When it's difficult to deal with others, especially if, you're, if they're offending you, you are to be gentle and to not threaten, not to return tooth for tooth or eye for an eye. When it comes to forbearance, as we live out our faith at school or work or in, in public, we must be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. And this will require us to stand for truth, especially when it comes to dealing with hot topics such as homosexuality or gay marriage or abortion. And as you stand for truth, you will need to forbear with people and not revile or insult others when they insult you. You will need to keep your cool for the sake of validating the gospel that you proclaim. This is what you have been called to. And this is the example that Christ has left for you to follow. Now where do we go to for this self-control? Well, Paul's exhortation to display self-control with everyone is followed by the comforting truth that the Lord is at hand or the Lord is near. And you see that there in verse 5. The nearness of God can refer to the fact that the Lord's return is near or that the nearness of the Lord or refers to the nearness of the Lord's presence. Both are encouragements for why we are to obey Paul's exhortation. If it means nearness, it means that the Lord is near. Then Paul calls us to follow in Christ's footsteps because his coming is close and he is coming to vindicate you. If it means presence, it means that the Lord is near to his people. And we are encouraged to obey the Lord because he is ready to help us. In any circumstance. Now what is the result of our self-control? Well as we submit our lives to God in obedience. We testify of what Christ has done on the cross for us. We testify that he is worthy of being obeyed. And worthy of being suffered for. When we obey in this way, it shows that He is the greatest reason and the greatest source of our joy. So Christian, I want to ask you, what are you known for? What are you known for? What do your friends know you for? What do your co-workers know you for? What does your family or your neighbors know you for? Is it your reasonableness or self-control? Is it known to everyone? When you're called home to be with the Lord, will you be remembered as someone who modeled Christ-like forbearance in the way that you treated others? So we've seen that we are to stand firm by striving for unity with other Christians. 
We are to strive for joy in the Lord. And we are to strive for self-control. This leads us to our fourth point. We are to strive for dependence on God. Here we come to something that I'm sure we all have experienced at some point in our lives. Anxiety. It's interesting that something that seems so normal and common is precisely what we are commanded not to do. Paul writes, and you see it there in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. So anxiety, what is it? Well, the best place to turn to for an understanding of what anxiety is, is the Bible. And one of the best passages that teaches us what this is about is what David read for us this morning in Matthew 6, 25 through 34. And I, I, I won't read it again because we read it this morning, but I do want to make some observations. If you want to turn there with me, um, Matthew 6. Keep your, your finger uh, there on Philippians 4 because we'll come back to it. But here in Matthew 6, this is the passage that David read this morning, verses 25 through 34. This is Jesus' teaching on anxiety. One of the things that we find in the passage is that Jesus teaches us not to worry about anything. The food we eat and drink and the clothes we wear. This deals with worrying about the future, which then leads you to freak out about it. And the key here is a negative kind of worry. Now, why shouldn't we worry? Well, in verse 26, we read, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Here we find that if God provides for his creation, the birds... Surely He will provide for you who have been redeemed by the blood of His Son. But we also find that we shouldn't worry because worrying or anxiety is pointless. Jesus says that right there in verse 27. He says that worrying or anxiety won't add any more hours to your life. Spending time worrying about the future is like riding a carousel. You go around and around and around and around and it doesn't get you anywhere. You end up in the same spot when you get off. So we shouldn't worry or we shouldn't be anxious because it's pointless. We also see that we shouldn't worry because it's something that Gentiles or non-Christians do. You see that there in verse 31 and verse 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. We, on the other hand, are to give ourselves not to worrying like those that don't know God, like those that don't. Uh, aren't provided for in the same ways. 
But we are told what to give ourselves to in verse 33. But first, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is what we are to give ourselves to. So we shouldn't worry because it's something that non-believers do. Other practical reasons for why we shouldn't worry are it robs you of your joy. When you're anxious, your mind is no longer thinking about the grace of God in your life. Instead, it focuses on trying to control the future, which is not yours to control. We also see that we shouldn't worry because worrying keeps you from seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, meaning it'll only distract you from advancing the gospel, and it'll lead you to doubt the good news of the gospel, as if God wouldn't provide for you. So where do we turn to as a source for our dependence on God? What's the antidote to anxiety? Well, if you turn back to Philippians 4, in verse 6, we find the antidote. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. The remedy to anxiety. The remedy to anxiety is a dependence on God that is is displayed by going to Him in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. It's dependence on God. It's letting your requests be made known to God. Now this seems easy to do, but it can be challenging. And that is because our dependence on God rests on our view and understanding of God. For example, if you trust God, you will depend on God. But if you don't trust Him, you won't depend on Him. And if you depend on God, you will go to Him in prayer. But if you don't depend on Him, you won't pray. So you see how it all depends on our understanding of who God is, on our understanding of God's magnitude, of His greatness, of His ability to provide This is what it rests on. So how do we depend on God? Well, the first thing that we see in the text is that you must decide not to be anxious. You must strive to not worry sinfully about the future. Instead, you're to look to the good and loving sovereign God who has everything under His control. And second... You're to go to God in prayer. Paul exhorts the Philippians and you Christian to go to the Lord in everything. Don't hesitate. God invites you and calls you to come to Him to pray to, pray to Him. And the third thing is thank God in your prayers. Thank God for everything He's already given you for the food, for the clothing, for the shelter, but most importantly, for the salvation that He's giving you in His Son, Jesus Christ. And also thank Him for His Word, especially because it is by His Word that we get to know Him. 
This is what leads us then to depend on God. So what is the result of our dependence on God? Well, one of the first things that we notice is we find protection. There in verse 7, it says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Paul doesn't say that God will keep you from having problems. But he does say that God will give you his peace to guard you in the midst of your problems. This means that you experience stillness in your heart and mind that keeps you from being shaken no matter the circumstance. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. You experience it even if your circumstance calls you, calls for panic and worry. This peace enables you to face anything this world throws at you and preserves you in the gospel. It is one of the ways that God uses to finish the good work that He has started in you. It's His protection via His peace. So once again, non-Christian, if you know yourself not to be a Christian, we are happy that you're here. But I want to ask you uh, another question. Do you desire this kind of peace? Do you find yourself unable to rest? Unable to have peace at night? Do you find yourself waking up, tossing and turning? Or even during the day, not being able to enjoy your meal? Not being able to focus on what you're doing because you're so troubled by the different circumstances of life? Well, the only way to have this peace is to know the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. The greatest peace you need is to have peace with God. The Bible says that this is man's greatest need because sin has made all men hostile towards God and everyone deserves to be judged. But God, in His loving kindness, has offered His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross as a sacrifice and resurrected Him three days later so that if you repent of your sins and put your trust in Him, you too can experience this peace free of charge to you, all at the cost of the Son's life. If you want to know more about this peace, please ask me, ask Jeremy, or ask anyone um, around you, and we would be more than happy to, to tell you more about this peace and Jesus Christ who offers it to you. So we've seen that we're to stand firm by striving for unity with other Christians. We're to strive for joy in the Lord. We're to strive for self-control. And we're to strive for dependence on God. And this brings us to our last point, which is we are to strive for godliness. Look at verse 8 and 9 with, and read it with me. It says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 
The final exhortation that Paul calls for deals with our thoughts and our actions. These two things are what the previous exhortations rest on. If we are to strive for unity, joy, self-control, and dependence, we must think rightly. But we can't stop there because if we do, we'll become hearers of the word only. And the Bible says that it's not the, do- it's not the hearers of the word, but the doers of the word that are justified by God. Which is why Paul also addresses our actions. So both of these things are necessary for godly living. So when it comes to right thinking, what are we to think of? When it comes to our thoughts, Paul says that we are to give our minds to thinking about the things that are excellent and praiseworthy. And this is a list of virtues, things that, they're in verse 8, begin with a description of, the, of both of these things. Things that are excellent and things that are praiseworthy. And in short, this is a list that calls us to surrender our thought life to Jesus and not to sinful things of the world. When it comes to right living, how are we to live? Well, Paul writes, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. What he is saying is that we are to live in accordance accordance to the teaching of God's word. This is what our lives are to be informed and conformed to. So what are we to do with these things? Well, we're called to be to engage in these things with our mind. When it comes to the mind, Paul says that we are to actively engage our minds on the things that are of excellent quality. We are to pay attention to these things so as to be shaped by them, according to one scholar. For example, when it comes to that which is honorable or worthy of respect, or to put it negatively, not vulgar, we should let these things shape our thinking insofar as it aligns with God's word. You could find such things in an honorable, honorable things, for example, in a husband, in a way that a husband treats his wife, whether he be Christian or non-Christian. Because by God's common grace, we still find good things by God's good design in the world that he created. Or to take another one of these virtues, when it comes to whatever is just or whatever is right, as God's character is just and right, you can find it in good sportsmanship where there's a desire to play according to the rules. So if you're watching a basketball game or a football game and you see folks competing in a way that is just, that is according to the rules, you can dwell on these things and let that shape your thinking because it aligns or it points to the character of God. Think about what's good. Dwell on these things and let it inform how you think and live. And when it comes to our lifestyle, when it comes to our way of living, we are to imitate the things that we have learned from godly examples. Once again, we shouldn't stop at just right thinking, but we should move towards practice, specifically practicing the things that we learn from God. So how do we test what's right to make sure that it's right? 
Well, we can test these things by looking to the one who has modeled perfectly all of these things for us. And we find that in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who gave his life to unite and reconcile repentant sinners to God. And he accomplished it. We can look to the one in whom we find lasting joy because he made it possible for us to be right with God. We can look to the one who is the perfect model of self-control, who endured suffering to preserve the gospel so that we could be included in his family. We can look to the perfect example of how we are to depend on God. Jesus' prayer life teaches us how we are to depend on God for everything. He is the Word made flesh who lived among us, teaching us and giving us the example of how we are to live. So look to Jesus. And the result of this godly living is that the God of peace will be with you. And we see that in the last part of verse 9. The God of peace will be with you. This is important because it's a promise that offers rest and assurance. Godly living is a way for us to know that God is with us. And this is the most comforting thing that we could know. So Christian, the things that you give your thought life to matter. This means that you must guard your mind and not let it think whatever it wants. You should take every thought captive so as to obey Jesus Christ. So saturate your mind with God's word so that you would be renewed in your thinking. This will enable you to think clearly and strive for unity, joy, self-control, dependence, and godly living. In conclusion, God has shown you His grace by granting you to believe in Christ. This has implications for your life. You are to stand firm in the Lord until He returns by striving for unity striving for joy, striving for self-control, striving for dependence on God, and striving for godly living. And you must remember that all of these things are unnatural. In fact, they are supernatural. And the only way to do this is by depending on God. This is why Paul reminds us that these things are done in the Lord. So strive for these things by depending on God, and this God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for being a God who is with us and for being a God who provides for us. We thank you that in your kindness, you sent your Son into this world to seek and to save us, and that he has left an example for us to follow. And because He has redeemed us, now we have the ability and the responsibility to model what He has left for us. We pray that You would enable us to strive for these things for the glory of Your name and for our joy and our edification so that the world would know that You are the one and only true God. We thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.